<clears throat> just a little bit of an infomercial of sorts. It's a little bit unusual what we're doing this morning, but if you'll notice, on when you leave the, the lobby area just outside the doors to the right, one of our uh, folks who's been living in China for a number of years, Keith Manning, is there at a table uh, with a number of leather goods that are spread in front of him. Uh, Keith had come, while he was in China, came in contract with a, contact with a man who's a new believer and has three children with significant uh, medical needs at the level of bone marrow transplants and heart surgeries kind of thing. And to raise a child with those kind of needs in the United States is significant. You take three children with those kind of huge needs in China, um, it's a massive burden. But this guy is a remarkable leather worker, and he has, Keith has brought some of his uh, products here to sell for the purpose of blessing that family. Now, uh, let me just say that this has absolutely nothing with mo- to do with money changing in the temple, if you're worried about that. Uh, absolutely nothing to do with that, although nervous elders did have it set up outside the lobby area. Um, it has everything to do with being the body of Christ because we can to a brother in Christ in China who's in need. And Keith, uh, say hi to Keith out there. Um, he can tell you more about this brother and his ministry, it's a, it's a fantastic thing. So um, today, Acts chapter 20, if you open your Bibles there while you find your way there, I would like to, to pray for us if I could. Let's bow. Father, come and in kindness, the kind of kindness that gives life and faith, uh, send your spirit amongst each of us. Don't miss a one of us, Father, and Um, take this kind of uncommon portion of Scripture and use it for its good purposes in our lives. Strengthen your church and each member of it by your word and your spirit now, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. There's a uh, high school basketball team in Gainesville, Texas. Um, They're called the Tornadoes. And typically, the fan base at a tornado basketball game is zero. No fans come to their games. One Gainesville player said, my parents came to one game, but they didn't come to the other ones because they didn't have time. And uh, the other students at Gainesville don't come to games either, mostly because they can't get out. See, Gainesville is a juvenile correction facility for felony offenders. And... um, One of the few perks at the facility for very good behavior is a chance to leave the prison a few times a year to play basketball. They play against private schools uh, like the one you see on the picture called Vanguard College Prep in Waco, Texas. And uh, before this game, two of the Vanguard players thought it was really lousy to play a team that had no fans. So these two young men, Hudson Bradley, Ben Matheson, they announced... Uh, before their home game, they asked some of their fans a favor, cheer for the opposing team. And this idea caught on, and uh, as you can see, coming out, the shocked Gainesville players walked on the court to find their own signs made in support of the Gainesville team. They had their own cheerleaders, even even had their own fan section. Half of the crowd was assigned to cheer for the opposing team. As the game went on, the article says, everybody, it's got a, probably a little bigger than what the guys thought, everybody started cheering for the Gainesville players, right? Um, 
And this is, listen to what one of the kids said. He says, uh, when I'm an old man, I'll still be thinking about this. You know, encouragement is a powerful thing. Um, Nelson Mandela wrote, he said, It is never my custom to use words lightly. If 27 years in prison has done anything to us, it was to use the silence of solitude to make us understand how precious words are, how real speech is and its impact on the way people live and die. Um, encouragement is a powerful thing. And so it's not a surprise that when you drop into Acts 20, you see the Apostle Paul traveling from church to church to church doing what? Encouraging the believers. Um, he is in Acts chapter 20, he's in Ephesus, if you remember last week. He's just escaped a riot that was set off by some silversmiths whose, whose work was being um, decimated by the fact that worshipers of the god Artemis were turning to Christ. So there's this huge riot in Ephesus. And in, in chapter 20 it says, after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. And when he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. And there he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through uh, Macedonia. So remember, we're in the middle of the book of Acts, or actually in the back end of the book of Acts. Paul is on his third missionary journey. right? And he's going back and he is visiting a lot of churches that has already been started. So he's, he's here in Ephesus. He's going to leave Ephesus. He's going to go over to this region in, in Macedonia and down into Greece and encourage uh, the, the churches there is what we, see, what we see going on. And he is intent on strengthening the disciples. It says that when he's in Ephesus, he calls the believers together and he, he's encouraging them. He goes through Macedonia and he given them much encouragement. Um, you, ever, you ever wonder what, um, what it would be like to be encouraged by the Apostle Paul? What does that look like? You know, is it, does he, is it high fives, maybe a little knock, some attaboys? What, what is it like to be encouraged by the Apostle Paul? And I think when Luke talks about it here, he means more than just that. Um, the word that, that Luke likes to use for encouragement, if we brought it into our language woodenly, it, it just means to, to call alongside. And that what the Apostle Paul is doing, he's, he's calling these people alongside him in following Christ. Um, and it's a rich term. There's a, it takes about a dozen English words to capture the, the full meaning of it. So in your Bible, this word, this idea of calling alongside is translated in English as comfort, encourage, embrace, beseech, appeal, implore, exhort, entreat, urge. And for us, um, it takes the shape of a command. The church of Jesus is commanded to encourage one another. Okay, Paul's going to write to one of these churches that are in the region where he's traveling right now on his third journey. In 1 Thessalonians 5, he says... Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just, just as you are doing. He commands them to do that. The book of Hebrews, perhaps more familiar to you, says this. 
let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So encouragement is to be huge in the church. Okay? When you come to church, it ought to be with the expectation that you're going to be encouraged, okay? um, not discouraged. The Bible never commands us to discourage one another, okay? It is not a spiritual gift of discouragement. So, but sometimes the church can feel like that. It feels like um, this magazine that was in, in uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, called the New Delta Review. This is their stock rejection letter they send out to people who've contributed to their magazine and been rejected. It goes like this. Thank you for submitting. Unfortunately, the work you sent is quite terrible, Please forgive the form rejection, but it would take too much of my time to tell you exactly how terrible it was. So again, sorry for the form letter, right? Okay. Paul, Paul reminds us in, in Ephesians 4 that we are not simply about the unloving declaration of our assessment of others. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So, back to our question. What, what shape might Paul's encouragement to these churches have taken as he's traveling, encouraging the disciples from one location to the other? I mentioned he's in Ephesus as we meet up with him in chapter 20, and there he calls the disciples together and is encouraging them. And later on, he's going to write a letter back to the church in Ephesus. It's in your Bible. It's called Ephesians. And in there, Paul uses the same language of encouragement in chapter 4 this way. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you. That's, that could be rendered encourage you. Same, same exact word. Encourage you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Paul is encouraging the Ephesians to walk worthy of their calling what it means to be named Christian, to, to be one of Christ's people. Live worthy of that. And what he has in mind in particular is how they treat one another. Look at that same passage again. Um, Paul says, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. I urge, I encourage you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So, um, Paul is encouraging the church in Ephesus, and I would say the church at North Wake, to walk in a manner worthy of our calling as Christ's people by the way we treat one another. Okay? If you want to walk worthy of the name Christian, then how you treat the people in this room really matters. There's one guy estimated that of the letters to churches in the New Testament, all the letters there, 44% of those letters is given over to the subject of how we're supposed to treat one another. For almost half of all the New Testament letters. Contrast that with 4% is given over to teaching on spiritual gifts. Okay. It's huge. It's huge. Um, Ray Ortland. Pastor Ray Ortland writes that the kind of God we really believe in is revealed in how we treat one another. 
And the New Testament says, love one another, forgive one another, bear with one another, be merciful to one another. And he says, here's some one another's that it does not say in the New Testament. You won't find any of these in the New Testament. Sanctify one another, humble one another, scrutinize one another, pressure one another, embarrass one another, corner one another, interrupt one another, defeat one another, sacrifice one another, shame one another, judge one another, run one another's lives, confess one another's sins, intensify one another's sufferings, point out one another's failings. See, Paul is encouraging us to love one another in such a way that we are truly for each other so that church is the most encouraging place you can ever go to. If you want to be encouraged, go to small group. If you want to be encouraged, show up on Sunday morning. When Paul left Ephesus, it says that he spent three months in Greece. Okay, So he left Ephesus, he travels over here, and he travels down to Greece. Probably that involved another visit to the city of Corinth, based on some of the other writings in the New Testament. When Paul's this, this church in Corinth was one that Paul really lavished this idea of encouragement most heavily on. When he wrote the church at Corinth, he talks about encouragement to them more than any other church. Um, and, in your, and in your Bibles, there are two letters to this church that are preserved for us, First and Second Corinthians. And the opening salvo in his letter to this struggling church in Second Corinthians is the second letter to him. Uh, Paul takes the idea of encouragement and he pushes it towards comfort. And in, and in just about five verses, he uses that idea of comfort and encouragement ten times. Here, listen to just a little bit of it. From 2 Corinthians 1. Blessed be the God, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Okay, There's that idea, there's that word. Comfort, encouragement, the God of all encouragement, who comforts and encourages us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort and encourage those who are in any affliction with the comfort and encouragement which we ourselves are comforted and encouraged by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort and encouragement too. Right? Um, Paul Paul is writing here about his own sufferings. Okay? He says um, that the God of all comfort comforts us. Paul's writing about his own sufferings in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So he receives massive comfort and encouragement in his suffering. And it spills over into the lives of other people. And, and Paul had a pretty deep well of suffering that had to be filled. Okay? Here's a glimpse from the same letter in 2 Corinthians 11. He talks about, he says our, he's comparing himself with other teachers. He says, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. He says, I'm talking like a madman. He says, I have far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. 
Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure." I think we could say, Paul knew suffering, right? He knew suffering, but he also knew a greater comfort in that suffering from God, an encouragement from God that was so sufficient that he could pass it on to others. And in a sense, Paul's uniquely qualified to do that because he suffered so greatly. He experienced a great comfort as a result, a great encouragement. There's, a, there's a, an author, his name is Sky Jathani, and he tells a story when he was 18 that his father, who was a doctor, was diagnosed with cancer. And uh, he said, I sat next to him in the waiting room before the operation. He says, it's odd seeing him in a hospital, not striding with confidence into a patient's room or giving orders at a nurse's station like a battleship commander, something I had witnessed many times as a boy accompanying him on Saturday morning rounds. Instead, he sat in silence with his shoulders rolled and his hands shaking. And he said to his son, you know, son, doctors make the worst patients. <laughs> Why? This guy asked him. And he said, because we know too much. We know the thousands of things that can go wrong that most people never imagine. And this guy writes, thankfully, his cancer was caught early and he survived. But something important happened when the physician became the patient, when the expert became the examined. He gained something that can't be taught in medical school or acquired from years of practicing medicine. He says, cancer gave him empathy. I saw his compassion for his patients grow following his own health crisis. He says, doctors may make the worst patients, but patients make the best doctors. And, uh, you know, there is a God whose comfort is greater than your suffering. And he is there for you to bring you comfort and encouragement. But know that he is also positioning you to bring it to others. Your suffering is bigger than you. His comfort is bigger than your suffering. I remember um, a number of years ago going over to the children's wing at the hospital. I think it was in Chapel Hill to, to be with... Uh, Noah and Steph Joyner, when Shepard was born and had a bunch of really tough health issues at the start, and uh, mercifully, Shepard grew through that, flourished. He's, you know, thriving today. But I remember in, being in that um, waiting room with them and then uh, just watching them be unleashed on other parents in that waiting room. And there was nobody better than Noah and Steph to be in that waiting room because they had received a comfort from God that was unique to those parents in that waiting room and they were lavishing it on parents all around that waiting room in a way that honestly I could not. Um, see, those of you who are in really hard places, you are there. You know that you are there for something bigger than you, for a comfort bigger than you, but also a reason bigger than you. 
As you draw near to the God of all comfort in the midst of your suffering, you are uniquely positioned to share that same comfort with others. And then you can say to them what Paul said to the sufferers in Corinth. He said, our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will share in our comfort. There's that idea again, in our encouragement. See, these, this is what it means to be encouraged by the Apostle Paul. And this is what it means for us to encourage one another. Now, if we go back to our text, the next few verses are full of difficult-to-pronounce names from all over the place who are traveling around with Paul, okay? And they end up here. They end up, they travel back around, they end up in this little place right here called Troas. And the, the guys really are from all over the place uh, with all their uh, hard-to-pronounce names. They're from Berea and Thessalonica and Derby and a number of different places, right? What seems to be happening here, we know from other writings in the New Testament, Paul is going amongst all these Gentile churches, non-Jewish churches, collecting an offering for the poor believers in Jerusalem to take it back to them. And likely, these guys are all representatives from those churches, and they're going to take it back to a predominantly Jewish church suffering in Jerusalem, and Paul is building unity amongst these diverse churches by this action. And through all that, he ends up in that place up there, called Troas, right, right up there, and we find out when he gets there, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, the believers are now gathering, not on the Sabbath, but on the Lord's Day, the resurrection day to worship, um, just as we do, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. And there are many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. This is an odd little story to be tucked away in the middle of, of the book of Acts, right? And maybe it's helpful first to talk for just a few minutes about what this story is not primarily about, okay? It's not primarily a cautionary tale against falling asleep in church, okay? If you fall asleep, you likely will not die. Likely will not die. So um, for some of you, honestly, you work second shift, you work third shift, you work or you have a nocturnal child, perhaps of greater value for your soul than the sermon is a nap, okay? I understand that, but I also understand that that is very, very few of you uh, that, that fall into that category. And if, you, if it's your regular pattern, if you're regularly a nodder or a dozer during the sermon, this may mean that you are not preparing well for church, okay? You, you may not be preparing at all for church. Um, and that may be due to the fact that your expectations are off, that they are far too low for the gathering of God's people to sit under the teaching of God's word. By his spirit, God himself speaks to you about the condition of your soul and life before him in a unique way, in a way that sometimes feels, some Sundays, just for you when you've prepared yourself for it. Um, Nobody... Nobody writes about our misguided expectations better than Annie Dillard. Uh, She says, Why do people in churches seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a package tour of the absolute? 
She goes on and she says, on the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sensibly, sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? She says, it's madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews, for the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. See, in the absence of that kind of expectation that you might meet and hear from God in the gathering of His people and the teaching of His Word, um, you don't prepare well. So you stay up too late on Saturday night, and you arise too late on Sunday morning, and you arrive here in disarray. Okay? And I'm not just talking about your hair and your clothes. Your mind and your soul are not ready, not expectant. Um, and in fact, some of you have trained yourself to sleep here. Uh, you, you walk into the room, and it's like you come into a spell, and church sleep falls upon you. This used to have... This just happened to me when I was in college at the engineering library. I would walk in. It was like this fog settled over me, and I needed a nap. I just I needed to go deep in the bowels of the library, and and didn't matter if I'd slept, and it was first thing in the morning, just something about that place. We had a friend in Texas, and she, she was that way in church. We'd come, we'd sit right down front, and as soon as she sat down, it was like this great colossal battle. If that's you, then you need to change your routine. You can get up and stand in the back. You can sit down here in spitting distance, right? I can bring you up. You can sit up here if you have to. Um, I, there's a rumor, and I think this is just a rumor, of a professor who fell asleep during his own lecture, okay? And some of you have mastered church sleep. So it's not, it's just really not to imperil church sleep. I, that's not the point. And the point is not either to justify really long, unedited, sleep-inducing sermons. Although when I go kind of long, just remember, it could be worse, right? Paul went to midnight. Past midnight, this incident happens. The young boy falls asleep, dies. And Paul then teaches the rest of the night, we'll find out, until daybreak. Um, but what you do find here is a real eagerness on the part of the believers in Troas to receive the word. They, they sat until past midnight. And then in some form or fashion, all through the night, to hear the apostles' teaching. And uh, I, I commend you as a church at North Wake. You, you are remarkable. Um, I think especially our seminary students who are accustomed to critiquing sermons, I know that you resist that nobly here. And instead you receive what it is, what the, the humble efforts to bring God's word to you. And that our, that our professors do the same is really commendable of, of their great humility. But, but anyway, that is all that I can say about what this passage is not about. Okay, so... So why is this in here? Why did Luke salvage this? What is the main idea that he's after? Why would he include a story about a boy falling to death? Um, well, that's not the whole story. It helps to read on and see that after Eutychus fell to his death, 
Paul went down, bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And here's one of the great understatements of the Bible again. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Okay. Not a little encouraged. It's that same idea. Okay. Now, you listen to that story. Does that bring to mind any other Bible accounts and stories that you've read? Anything similar happen? Um, some of you may remember in the Old Testament... Something similar happened with Elijah, the prophet, in 1 Kings 17. He, he comes upon a child who has died, and he, Elijah, the prophet, stretched himself upon the, upon the child three times, cried out to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. So again, this kind of full-body contact with the child leading to the resurrection of the child. It also happened, some of you may have thought of Elisha. Similar thing happened in 2 Kings chapter 4. Elisha comes into the house. He saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in, shut the door behind the two of them, prayed to the Lord. Then he went up, lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. And so there's some striking similarities here in terms of the contact between the prophet and the child, the contact between Paul and the child. But most significantly, the real parallel is, hey, they rose from the dead, right? Children are being raised from the dead by great prophets. Um, and so it's interesting. The rest of the book of Acts, it pretty much humanly revolves all around the apostle Paul and his travels, right? Paul goes here, Paul gets arrested there, Paul gets tried here, this happens here. And the rest of the book, it focuses almost exclusively on Paul as the central human character. And so what Luke is doing here is showing us that Paul, though he's much disputed and opposed by religious leaders almost at every turn, he bears the same stamp of endorsement as the great prophets of the Old Testament, right? This is a great this is a great stamp of God's endorsement on Paul's ministry, and he's elevated to the likes of Elijah and Elisha. Now, some of you may have thought of, of some of the New Testament resurrection stories, like this one from Mark 5, where they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why, why are you making commotion and weeping? The child's not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was and taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And the, the, the wording here is strikingly similar to what Paul says of Eutychus. Do not be alarmed. And when they say, why are you making a commotion? Alarmed and commotion are the, are the same words okay, in their language, just rendered slightly differently in ours. And again, the child is referred to as not being fully dead in some sense. His life is in him. She is sleeping. It sounds, sounds like a movie. He's only mostly dead, right? 
Um, but no, they're dead. Okay? This is the language of hope of a resurrection that's about to happen. Okay? It's language that anticipates their resurrection. So Luke here is clearly attaching Paul by this great miracle to the works and ministry, not only the great prophets, but of Jesus himself. Okay? And by the way, this is the final miracle recorded in the book of Acts. Um, and it's a ringing endorsement of Paul and his ministry. Paul, who is so central to this latter section of the book of Acts, and who, whose writings are so central to the life of the church. And this is where this endorsement of Paul matters to us too because there's no New Testament writings, I don't believe, that are more under attack these days than the Apostle Paul. Okay. He's, he's characterized as a misogynistic woman hater because he esteems the uniqueness of the role of women distinct from men in the church and in the home while valuing them equally in person. And that is uh, horribly misunderstood. And he's pitted against Jesus as though he teaches something less different than or different from and lesser than what Jesus himself would teach. And Paul's somehow inferior. And again, Luke is putting God's stamp large on Paul and by extension on his writings by recording this miracle. We are to view Paul's writings with the same authority as any Old Testament prophet or even by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John who recorded the biographies of Jesus. It's, it's the same. Luke's saying he's, he's that guy. Okay? He has that kind of God stamp on his life such that God is using him to raise the dead. Now, the, other, the other thing that I'll mention to you about this little odd-shaped story is, is the obvious one. Hey, it's a resurrection story. It's a resurrection story. I would call it an anticipatory miracle. Okay. It's, a, it's a miracle. And that, in part, that means it's rare. Okay. It doesn't happen every day. In fact, if you go through the, um, through the Bible, there aren't hardly any, just a handful of resurrection stories, both Old and New Testament combined. There's two, maybe three in the whole Old Testament, and there's only three more in the New Testament apart from a, a flurry that happens when Jesus is crucified, um, it, is, it is very, very rare. And so very, very few of loved ones lost to death in, will be restored to us in this life. It's an extraordinary miracle. Um, but I call it an anticipatory miracle because it anticipates, it points to the promised resurrection that belongs to every one of us in Christ. Okay. Paul is going to write back to the same churches that he's visiting now down in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians, he's going to write, As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And so Eutychus' resurrection sows hope deep for those who have lost a loved one, okay? especially those who have lost a child. There's a hope greater than your loss that waits for you with the surety of Christ's resurrection. There is a resurrection coming. And Eutychus' story reminds us of that. And what we're about to do as we take of the Lord's table here together 
We are to do this act of remembrance and worship until Jesus comes to usher in that great and final resurrection. The Lord's Supper, is, it, it's, our, it's our great strengthening encouragement that there's a love greater than our sin. There's a love that has washed away all our sin by the death of Christ on the cross and his resurrection. Here at this table, we find strength. Here we find the greatest of encouragements, that we are loved by God such that he would send his son to bear our sins and their penalty. And today we eat of that encouragement, we drink of that encouragement. Because on on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus, amongst his disciples, took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body. It is broken for you. Do this to remember me. In the same manner, he took the cup and he said, this cup, it's the new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Do this also to remember me. Would you pray with me, please? Father, have mercy. Christ, have mercy on us. Spirit, bring mercy to us. That your people who are full of sorrow, who are discouraged, might come to this table and have communion with a risen Christ who is here. May they find encouragement and hope unshakable that they may be reminded that though they suffer, They are loved by the Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort and encouragement. So, Lord, may this table be for them real, true communion. May it be for us um, the eating and the drinking of the encouragement of the body and the blood of Christ, broken, shed for us, so that not one Not one sin remains on the ledger by our name. So, Father, have mercy on your people. Delight in our remembrance of your Son now.